Good evening, all. This is Coffee with Jim. It's October 29th. Autumn leaves here in Bethesda, Maryland are in their full orange, yellow, and red. A little after 5 p.m. here and 9 p.m. in Liverpool, England. I mentioned that location because our guest today joins us from Liverpool, in fact, the Center for Cardiovascular Science. I'll tell you more about that in a second. Our guest, Dr. Rajiv Sankaranarayanan, he is the Heart Failure Clinical Lead Consultant Cardiologist at Aintree University Hospital. He is an NIHR CRN Scholar, British Cardiac Society Digital Committee Member, and Honorary Clinical Lecturer. Thanks for joining so late in your evening tonight, Rajiv. Oh, no, no. Thank you for having me, Jim. Absolute pleasure. Thanks to you and your listeners. Well, it's my pleasure to have you with us. And as you know, about a year ago, we had the pleasure to meet, thanks to the BCS, the British Cardiology Society Emerging Leaders yeah. Program. Before we get into detail on that, let's digress just for a moment. Rajiv, PC or Mac? PC. Okay. Football or cricket? Uh, cricket. Okay. Well, even though you chose cricket, you do live in Liverpool. So dare I ask... Liverpool or Everton? Oh, Liverpool, always. <laughs> always a red. <laughs> okay, well, good. Because die hard, die hard. <laughs> you're a diehard uh, Liverpool fan. Well, good, yes, because yes. Jurgen Klopp was on the line, so I wanted you to get the answer right there. <laughs> last, last one. If you and your family could travel safely anywhere in the world right now, where would it be? We would love to go back to Machu Picchu. So we went there uh, three, four years back. And even though we were, uh, we were there uh, in Peru for uh, a week, uh, we'd like to explore Peru and South America a bit more. So we'd love to go back to Peru. Oh, well, that sounds great. Just tell us a little bit about your, your family. Who's in your immediate family? So it's my wife, uh, who I met in med school. Uh, and I've got two children, a boy who is uh, 12 years old. He's a diehard cricket fan uh, like me, and he loves his football and uh, Liverpool Football Club as well. And I've got uh, a daughter who's 10, and she dances all the time. So I'd like to uh, describe her as she doesn't walk or run. She just dances. <laughs> That's all she does. Ballet. Uh, contemporary, all different dances. <laughs> oh, well, that's lovely. Those are just lovely images of you and your family. So, well, let's shift gears. In one of our previous dialogues, Rajiv, you told me that way back you knew you wanted to be a physician since the age of 10. Tell me, <laughs> tell me more. Where were you and what inspired that? So I grew up in Bangalore, so none of uh, my family were in medicine. My da dad was an engineer. Uh, I, I loved plants and you know biology, zoology. I loved everything, uh, living and moving, and human physiology always uh, interested me. Then I started getting interested in uh, you know the mind, the, the thinking. Neurology initially fascinated me. But yeah, so from the age of 10, 11, I remember anyone would ask me, you know how people would ask kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? When you grow up, and I used to say a doctor for some particular reason. Yeah, so that always fascinated me, you know, uh, illness and cure. Well, obviously, you've had a long career. Well, let's jump ahead to, let's say, the September 11, 2001 timeframe. And there were obviously significant events then, but that timeframe had an impact on your career in a different way than most people might think. What was going on then, and what was the impact to your career? Yeah, I had just uh, graduated from medicine and uh, I was in the process of taking my USMLE steps en route to going to the US uh, for my higher training. And 9-11, uh, it, it threw a little bit of uncertainty into, in terms of the travel uh, situation, the visa process. So I actually came to the UK uh, en route as it were. So my original plan was to uh, come to the UK, train for a bit here, and then move on to the US. Uh, my my uh, wife, who I mentioned, uh, met me in med school. She joined me shortly after in the UK. And uh, as we trained here, we decided to stay on here. So that's, that's how 9-11, it sort of changed uh, 
career path in some way. Yeah, so you took a different path. Now let's turn the clock back to the beginning of this year. Yeah. And I believe it was back in either April or May, you had a severe case of COVID yourself. Tell us a little bit about what the mood was in the UK, in Liverpool, big picture, and then what it was like when you got COVID. Yeah, it was, it was, initially it was interesting at times, you know, when we heard of this, uh, this particular illness, uh, which started off in uh, China and Southeast Asia, and initially it, it intrigued all of us, it was something new, we heard of this, we thought it was a virus, we all thought, okay, it might be similar to the flu, I actually had to make an emergency trip to Australia to visit my uh, sister in Melbourne, so just uh, in, in March, uh, just before the UK went into lockdown, I had to make an emergency trip, uh, so I, uh, you know, flew via, uh, via uh, Dubai, you know, was there in Australia for a week. And again, there, as I traveled, it was interesting to see everyone somewhere in masks. Everyone had that apprehensive look in, in airports, you know, looking at uh, one another. A single single sneeze would put people off and, you know, make them move away. It's, it's, it's yeah, it's that sort of uncertainty, apprehension in the, in the air. Uh, so I came back and then my wife, I mentioned, uh, she's a doctor, she's a pediatrician. So she actually caught uh, COVID first and hers, uh, thankfully, was a milder version but as uh, you know most men you know the we call it man flu <laughs> so we are, we are the frailer sex so i got it pretty bad uh, you know i got covid pretty bad from her and i ended up in uh, in the very hospital in the very ward that i work in there for a week yeah and that was significant and at the time i only learned about that because you were posting a few tweets then and you mentioned your your children earlier I remember you just posting some things like saying, I, I can't wait to come home and see my kids. And your, I think your daughter had posted a, an image or drawing that she made for you. Tell us what that yeah. was like. Yeah, again, uh, it's it's something that nobody can prepare for. You know, when illness uh, takes you by surprise and there's this uncertainty, you know, it's the frailty. Uh, as a doctor, you see illness all around you. But when the tables are turned, when you fall ill yourself, and then you can see the fear. I still remember when I uh, was taken to hospital, uh, the fear in the eyes of my children. And I was like, will I see them again? You know, it's that sort of thing. Uh, because when you feel quite ill, when you're short of breath, when you know there are people around you dying. So yeah, it's, it's uh, you know uncertainty, apprehension. Uh, not knowing. So despite being a doctor, I'd like to think I know most illnesses. I still, you know, didn't know what the turn of events could be. So yeah, and, and uh, it's, it's interesting, like I said, so I, I, I met you, uh, you responded to my tweet. Uh, and and it, it's a lonely time. So unlike any other illnesses, when you're in hospital, you don't get visitors, you can't see your family. And sometimes the virtual world is the only, uh, you know, the friends you've got, <laughs> how you interact with people uh, over the phone, on Twitter, on Facebook, on social media. The virtual world may be where the only place where my friends are, but that's another story for another day. Uh, so you mentioned also that you were treated on the same ward where you are a consultant. What was that like? Yeah, that was interesting. Again, I didn't choose to go there. I just ended up there because that's the only place there was a bed available for me. So I was uh, I was moved to the from uh, the accident and emergency department or ED. I was moved to the coronary care unit, and yeah, so I ended up there. And the nurses who I worked with, they were looking after me. Uh, so, so to some extent, you know, there were familiar faces, and that uh, allays your anxieties to an extent. So that's that was good. But again, it's it's that helplessness, isn't it? Simple things. I could not. Uh, I was struggling for my breathing, and you. Take simple things for granted, you know, taking a breath in, breath out. So when you start struggling for those simple things, again, you know, it's it's uh, it was uh, a really tumultuous time, you know, we'll put it that way. Yeah, it must have been scary on many levels. Rajiv, I know you're known to be a very patient-focused physician to begin with. How did this COVID experience impact you in any way? 
Yeah, I'd like to think COVID's improved me as a as a physician, as a person. It's a classic case of adversity being the you know the best uh, teacher. And in this particular case, like I said, as a doctor who's uh, you know so the previous year I mentioned to you uh, before when we spoke, so I, I got uh, diagnosed with cancer, kidney cancer. So that you know to an extent I wouldn't say it prepared me for this, but you know that was a different sort of scenario. You know, but again I had to go and have a. Uh, the, the cancer removed. So this in some way, again, I was a patient in hospital, not knowing the outcome, not knowing if I would survive. And, and you know, I experienced what patients go through, some of the anxiety that you see in your patient's eyes, you know, when they are in hospital, the empathy. I'd like to think I, I can understand them a little bit better being on the other side of the fence, for example. How do you learn to treat that? Were you ever taught formally to address that aspect of care? I mean, you're a great clinician. Tell me more. It's, uh, it's, it's interesting because in med school, we are always taught to be a little bit distant. You know, the, uh, the empathy, it's something that cannot be taught. Uh, we, we are asked to uh, divorce ourselves from personal or the attachment with patients. Uh, so that's part of the med school, actually. Uh, you know, as doctors, we, we said you, you leave work at work. When you go back home, you don't think too much. But in reality, that's almost impossible. Being a doctor, it's such a human, you know, the, the emotions are part and parcel of what we do. So that's what differentiates us from robots, for example, you know, machines and humans. So I think that, that can't be taught. And we, you know, as we train as doctors, it's not something that is taught, but it's something that we learn, you know, on, on the job as it were. Yeah. I mean, do you still think that's the best path these days? If you were to advise yourself, let's say when you were a younger man, would you still advise yourself to kind of distance yourself from patients or would you look at it differently? No, I, I would. So I, I in fact, I t uh, tell my trainees uh, many of the things, you know, uh, that I teach them. I, t I tell them, put yourself in your patient's shoes. Put, and that's that's a classic case of what's been happening uh, as, as a part of COVID. You know, all medical services, uh, uh, I think in the UK, but even throughout the world, they've had to alter the services they deliver. There have been cancellations, postponements. And unless we feel and go through what patients have been going through, I don't think we can we can deliver a humane service, uh, you know, as doctors or nurses. So in the medical field, it's very, very difficult to completely remove, remove emotion. Mm. You know, just moving back to what you said earlier about your kidney cancer, of course, we hope that you continue to be well and to jump forward, mentioned the word robot. Well, let's bring that in here because in addition to being an accomplished consultant cardiologist, research scholar, a high potential physician leader, you're a successful technology entrepreneur. In fact, you received funding from the Hospital Dragon's Den, a technology competition which in the United States might be similar to our Shark Tank. Tell us more about that. Yeah, it's interesting. So, so our hospital, it's uh, it's got a unique, uh, so not many hospitals, they might have slightly different versions, but uh, they have an equivalent of the Shark Tank or the Dragon's Den, as you put it, where we go and pitch our ideas and seek funding for innovations. And I've been successful, thankfully, on three occasions in the last two years, the first of which was I wanted to develop a, a mobile app for patients. And it's the first of its kind uh, in the UK for patients with heart failure. So it's to help them manage their own condition. It's a condition they live with for most of their life. So it's to help the, you know, educate them about what to do, who to contact if they feel unwell, help them understand their condition better, you know, prompt them about taking their medications on time. It gives them alerts, log their appointments. So it's all in an app, basically. It's got a lot of educational videos. So I thought, you know, uh, not everybody might, might not appeal to everyone. Not everyone might have a smartphone, but the people who can use it, it works for them and for those who can't have created a, a booklet for them which which uh, you know, sort of simulates some of the things in the app so that's a fascinating technological breakthrough i think one of the things that 
you and I discussed in the past that might be a difference between the UK and the US right now is, so now that is technically owned by the hospital, correct? So it's not for commercial use, it's it's for patient use. And so it will be distributed. Um, how is it going? Yeah, so, so it's entirely free. So you know, any patient who's got a, a diagnosis of heart failure, we download it for them when they, when, when I see them or my nurses see them in the hospital. Again, uh, you know, we have, many of these patients are seen in the community. GPs ask about this. A lot of other clinicians in the UK have asked about this app and I've shared details of this. So it's entirely free and a patient charity that's called Pumping Marvelous. It's a patient charity. They love the app so much. They love the idea so much. I'm very grateful. I got a national award from them. So, you know, the message of how we can use the digital technology in healthcare and improving patients' lives, that seems to have spread. So, yeah, yeah it's entirely free. Well, well, bravo. Obviously, you were influenced by your dad and others. I think you said, right, he was an engineer. And so yeah. you were successful three times and you won a national award. And I imagine that's part of what made you so appealing, of course, to the BCS and the Emerging Leaders Program. What if we shift gears to talk about that a bit? Tell us a little about how the BCS program helped you. You did a DISC assessment, something that we worked on together. Yeah. We, ha- we did some coaching together. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so the BCS, uh, the, the, the Emerging Leadership Program was the first of its kind. We were the first of the cohort of 15 cardiologists uh, chosen by the British Cardiac Society. I'm very grateful to them. Uh, and this was con- conducted in cohort with the American College of Cardiology. You were part of this. So that's the first uh, way I met you, again, virtually. Uh, that was mainly to train consultants who were in the early part of their career or senior trainees in, uh, in cardiology and help us explore and develop our, uh, our leadership skills. That's why the coaching aspect, so initially, uh, like I mentioned before in conversations with you and some of my colleagues, uh, myself in particular, I was a bit cynical uh, about this whole process of coaching, for example, and how leadership styles can be molded, you know, especially in adulthood, you, you think that some of these traits, they stick, you can't change, you know. Uh, so, so I was a little bit uh, skeptical about that, but I, you know, I've, I've learned hugely, you know, the, the professional and personal interactions uh, with my colleagues, uh, some of the mentors, the senior cardiologists in the UK, uh, you know, Professor Simon Ray, Dr. Sarah Clark, and we had uh, Dr. Dick Kovacs and uh, Mike Valentine come over. So there was a lot of simulated role play and, and, the, and the interactions with yourself. Uh, gosh, that opened my mind. The, the very first time I remember when I spoke to you, uh, even though, you know, sometimes the virtual world, it can have a little bit of a barrier and it's slightly different from interacting with someone, you know, uh, face-to-face in, in you know, in the same room, for example. Uh, but even, you know, I could tell how personable you were, uh, you know, the, the trust developed within the first five minutes. I could open out, uh, expose some of my weaknesses, frailties, explore uh, some of my strengths, you know, develop the emotional intelligence, the self-awareness. So all of that was part of this, uh, this program, really. Well, as I said earlier, it was just a pleasure to get to know you then and to continue to work with you. And you were open to it and continue to be open to it. And I'm grateful to you for that. You know, we've touched a lot of uh, things today. Let's shift gears. You did say that coaching was a foreign concept in the UK. It seems to be growing now. One of the things that we're going through here in the US and maybe a little bit in the UK, obviously we're facing not only a pandemic, but the challenges of a medical, let's say, misinformation moment. There is a lot of public health information out there, as you know, different camps and feelings about that. What's going on in the UK? I think it's uh, it's largely similar. It's just different times, you know, uh, in terms of each country, uh, uh, it sort of peaks and troughs of uh, similar things going on. And unfortunately, we've sort of reached, it's all deja vu. It's going back to how things were in March, April, 
in many ways, you know, the uncertainty as to what's going to happen next, uh, the mixed messaging, you know, the lack of clear communication from higher up, wherever that is, whether it's, you know, it might be the leaders or uh, you know, it might be local, regional, at the national level. So some of this un- uh, uncertainty sort of uh, persists, unfortunately. So it doesn't look like we've learned hugely, but it's, it's difficult. You know, I don't think anybody or any country uh, could have prepared for something as unprecedented as uh, what the world's going through at the moment. But this is where I think leadership uh, should be, uh, should come to the fore. Whatever style uh, there is, uh, you know, uh, at, at whatever level. So I lead a service in my in my hospital. I'm also a part of uh, certain societies as a as a leader. So at whatever level, individual, regional, you know, national, I think this is where the leaders should uh, put their hands up. And you know, the the difficult times should sort of direct the the, the course, as it were, uh, because otherwise it's sort of the whole of humanity at risk here, isn't it? Uh, so there's no two ways. I think we can't shirk away from this challenge, really. No, that's right. We cannot. In beginning to wrap up, if you could share a public health message, what would it be? I think we've seen different leadership styles in different countries, whether it's in the healthcare level, whether it's in a political or government level. It's important each leader, each person doing their role. I think it's important that they, you know, be confident. Like I said, as a leader, we're looking for, you know, certain traits. Integrity is very important. So, you know, whatever is done, whatever decisions are taken, we have to put human life at the top of it, at the forefront of it. The the economic aspect or any other ulterior motives, greed, deviation, so all that should completely disappear. So, uh, you know, uh, so integrity, empathy again, you know, uh, 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 empathizing with what people are going through. And sometimes the flexibility, you know, it takes a lot of courage for leaders to admit they've been wrong and change, you know, being flexible. So uh, that along with very clear communications, you know, the mixed messaging is what uh, when you're communicating to, uh, you know, millions of people, when different people hear different things on different days, the messages don't really stick. So I think it's 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 a case for uh, firm leadership at the moment, and, and that's what uh, we're looking for. And that's my message. You know, it's both to uh, so to leaders to show firm leadership, but also to people to follow the rules really, because it's it's uh, you know everyone's lives at cost at the moment. Well, I mean, I was going to ask you what makes a great leader today. You've answered that. You've mentioned integrity, put you in life first, empathy flexibility, courage, clear messaging. Would you add anything else? Uh, it might be difficult for a leader to have everything. That's the ideal leader, isn't it? Uh, but a mix of all this, when you have the right intentions, I think you make the right decisions. And that's the main thing. And when you, when some decisions go wrong, accept it. Listen to the experts, whether they're scientists, uh, other leaders. So involve your team. So when you're a leader, you're, not, you're never alone. You have a whole team. So listen to your team. Be proactive, be flexible. I think it's got to be a combination of these qualities. Well, great points there. Thanks for your wisdom, insights. Thanks for your time this evening. I know your your kids are on holiday this week, so I want to wrap this up, say thank you to you so you can get back to your family this evening, Rajiv. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Thanks for having me again. My great pleasure.